Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Hope life is treating you well. Today, I want to talk about the wait and see approach to anxiety or OCD. The it's not that bad. Should we really work on it? Issue with anxiety or OCD. And this is an important one because a lot of times we're told by professionals, pediatricians, relatives, partners, it's really not that bad. Or you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Or, you know, I think it's kind of developmentally appropriate. Or it's just one of their quirky things that they do. And all of those might be true. But is there a benefit about being proactive in working on anxiety or OCD? We're going to dive all into it, so stay tuned. But before we get started, a couple of announcements. One, this podcast episode is sponsored by NoCD, and NoCD offers effective, affordable, convenient therapy available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. Link is in the show notes. And that's kind of an appropriate sponsor for this episode because we're going to be talking about kind of getting an assessment early, getting started early. And even if you don't get into formal treatment, even getting an assessment can be a really good first step. Sometimes people think that the world has to be on fire before you have to get an assessment and anybody can call no CD and get an assessment without a commitment to therapy just to see a baseline of where their child is at with OCD. I wanted to let you know before we dive into this episode that my free series is happening right now. And so if you're listening to this live, this should come out May 17th. I'm time traveling because technically in my world right now, it's May 2nd. I'm being very good and I'm batching two episodes today. So you should be wildly impressed with me. I don't know why you're not. (laughs) And this will come out on May 17th, which means I am in the middle of my survival series. It's a free video series, AT Parenting Survival Tools for for parents who are raising kids with anxiety or OCD. And it's three videos that you can watch anytime during the series. And I'm also doing a deeper dive in the series Facebook group where I'll do live classes to go more in depth on the videos. But you can watch all this stuff at your own time. It's one of those things that you don't need to like show up live for. So I hope that you are already part of this. But if not, You can really join at any time while the series is happening because like I said before, everything is on video or replay. So you can sign up at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. And at the end of the series, I will be opening up my AT Parenting community, which is a membership community. We are a tight-knit group of parents who are raising kids with anxiety or OCD. And I do live classes each week. They have like a million resources. They have access to me one-on-one through our website forums. So they can ask me questions in our forums and get my direct support and guidance. They can get the support from other parents. It's just really incredible 
for those that want that support, whether you want an extra clinical sounding board or you want to be surrounded by other parents or both. But you can learn more at atparentingcommunity.com. Get on the wait list so you get notified when it opens, which will be May 23rd, 2022. For those of you that are way into the future and diving deep into the library of my podcast episodes. But, you know, I open up the community every three months. So even if you are listening to this in 2025, hopefully I'm still around. My membership should still be there. You never know, but hopefully, right? Live for today, not for tomorrow. So who knows? Okay, let's dive into this topic for today. And I want to talk to you about this because I was doing an episode on the impact anxiety or OCD or and OCD has on your partnership, your marriage or your romantic relationship is huge. And I did a whole podcast episode on that not so long ago. I don't remember what episode number that is. I think it might be episode 260 or 259. You can always go to my website at atparentingsurvival.com, scroll down all the way to the bottom, go to the search button and type in partner and that episode should pop up because I'm sorry, I'm being lazy and I don't want to look. But yeah, that's just the deal on that one. But when I was doing that episode, as I was talking, it seemed like it would be really helpful to share an episode, a podcast episode on why it is important to get started on this stuff earlier rather than later. And I wanted to explain why. And I thought this would be a good episode that you can share with your partner or relatives or friends or even a therapist if you're wanting to get started and you're hitting some roadblocks or some barriers because of it. So the the reason why a lot of times people say a wait and see approach, let's just talk about where this comes from to begin with. And it, it can be different for each person and each relationship and each dynamic of whoever we're talking about. There are many roles and where people might tell you to not worry about it and just wait and see. So a lot of times people maybe don't want you to worry about it. Like that's the gist of it. They love you or they're your a pediatrician or your therapist, and they just don't want you to feel overwhelmed. And so they'll normalize it. You know, a lot of kids do that. Doesn't seem that bad. I don't think you should worry about it. Why don't you just wait and see? So it can come from from a, a place of love that people just don't want you to get stressed out. Another place, and it, it can be multiple reasons why people want to wait and see, is they don't want to pathologize their kids or their patients. And so they might say, I don't see the diagnosis if it's their patient, or they might say, I don't want to give them a label. And so if it's a partner or a friend or a family member, they might say, you know, they're only four. I don't want to pathologize them. Or they're only 10. You see more resistance, I think, earlier on. You see less of this wait and see approach as people get older, but it still can be a quite a big issue in relationships and in dynamics. And so People get nervous about labeling. I don't want to label them with an anxiety or OCD disorder. And maybe that's due to my own ghost in the nursery, maybe my own diagnosis, or other family and friends who have had that diagnosis. I don't want the stigma placed on my child, which is really seeing anxiety and OCD from your own lens of dysfunction and stigma, right? Because if you're worried about putting a stigma on a child, then you're perceiving it as somewhat of a stigma yourself. And then that that goes back to you and your perception of what it means to have anxiety or OCD. It is highly genetic. And so the apple doesn't fall far from the genetic tree, I always say. 
It doesn't mean that it's purely genetic. It doesn't mean that if I had two twins, they're both going to get anxiety disorders or OCD disorders, but the propensity of the risk is higher if there is a genetic disposition, predisposition in the family genetic pool to have anxiety or OCD or other mental health disorders. And so sometimes parents just don't want to jump on that bandwagon. They don't want to say, oh, yep, you know, here's another generation. Let's just wait and see. I'm trying to think of some other things. So we got the labeling and trying to make you feel better and trying to normalize it. Sometimes good friends unintentionally will just try to normalize things for you. Oh yeah, my kid did that too. But we don't want to spend too much time on why this happens. But the reality is the earlier you get started on this, the better. It doesn't mean that you have to label a child. It doesn't mean that you have to get a formal diagnosis unless you want to. So it doesn't mean you have to actually even go see a therapist. You don't have to get an assessment. You don't have to get an OCD diagnosis or an anxiety disorder diagnosis. You might want to if you want to really see what you're dealing with, but you don't have to. There's a lot of you don't have tos, right? But when you see some anxiety or OCD behaviors popping up in your child, and even if you have that little twinge of, hmm, my other two didn't do that. And that reminds me of my sister when she was a kid and she has an anxiety disorder or she was a really anxious person. A lot of times people in the past weren't diagnosed and you don't have to be diagnosed to have had anxiety or OCD, but maybe you're starting to see it in your two or three-year-old, or maybe you're seeing it in your five or 10-year-old and you're thinking, I don't know what this is, but it's very familiar. Maybe it reminds you of yourself. It doesn't matter. When we build skills early, there are so many benefits. And so you can go in and build skills at whatever level you're comfortable with. You don't have to build skills at the level of calling it anxiety or calling it OCD. If you're not comfortable, you don't have to. You might move towards that down the road, but you don't have to in the beginning. You may never move down the road. You might just say, I have kind of a a child with an apprehensive disposition. And that's what I'm going to work on. But when we build skills early, and it doesn't mean that if you are listening to this and your child's older, that it's too late because it is literally never too late to work on anxiety or OCD. Never. You could be 80 and decide, oh my gosh, I have OCD and you can work on it. And if you're motivated and well-guided, you can make drastic improvements to your life at 80. So it is never, ever, ever too late but there are some benefits from hitting it early. And those are the neuroplasticity of a child. And so there is a reason why they teach things at a very young age. There's a reason why they say that zero to five, when kids are acquiring language, is actually ironically the best time for them to learn another language. That's why you have all these immersion programs where they're teaching kids multiple languages because kids have such great neuroplasticity, which means their little neurons are like bendy, if you will. They can create multiple highways in their brain. Their brains are malleable and flexible and adaptable, and they can create new wirings a lot easier than we can as we get older. And that comes into play not only when they're learning languages, but when they're learning skills, skills to face their fears, skills to sit in discomfort, skills to identify their mind-body connection. Those are skills that can be actually part of 
their upbringing, part of who they are as a person, part of how they approach life in general to make them more resilient, more adaptable, more flexible, more tolerant of situations they can't control and a higher ability to pivot when things aren't going right and to sit in the discomfort when things make them uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but that sounds like superhuman skills that I'd want any human to have, right? That is not about anxiety or OCD. That is about having incredible skills that are really going to help me as a human being. And the earlier we teach our kids these things, especially the ones with anxiety or OCD, but all kids can benefit from learning those type of skills. So some parents will say, well, what if my child doesn't have anxiety or OCD? What if we find out down the road that they don't have that? I don't know about you, but I think that being resilient, learning how to face my fears, learning how to sit in discomfort, learning how to be flexible are skills I would want any child to have. And so it doesn't matter. So if you're not sure about the diagnosis, there are still so many things that you can do early. If you are sure of the diagnosis, that's even more of a reason to get on that bandwagon and start developing skills because this is a them problem, not a you problem. And unfortunately, we make it a me problem or a you problem when we want to micromanage our child's struggles. And so we might want to ignore it and overaccommodate it because we don't want to see our child in distress. Or we might want to punish it out. If I can be really, you know, authoritative and discipline this out of them, then they won't have this problem. I'll just force them to do the things that they are afraid to do and then they'll get over it. But neither of those approaches, even though they're they're the opposite end of the spectrum, are very effective long-term for kids who have anxiety or OCD. And so let's talk about what you can do early on and why it's helpful. The first thing, and I'm going to talk about them in order of complication and depth that you would go into. And so even just getting started on any level is very helpful. And so sometimes people will ask me, if my toddler is anxious, what should I do? Because a lot of toddlers are developmentally appropriately anxious little beings. I wrote a whole book on it, How to Parent Your Anxious Toddler. And a lot of the stuff I wrote about is common developmentally, but the anxious child just takes it one step further. And so sometimes it's hard to say, what will this be? My child looks really anxious right now and they're a toddler or preschooler, but what does that mean for when they're 10 or 15? And a lot of it depends on what you're doing right now. And so when you're building up skills, and we'll talk about what those will be at different ages, they might look a lot better at 10 and 12 than they would have if you hadn't helped them. Maybe they will never have a full-blown issue with anxiety or OCD, but you won't know that until after the fact. And so the first step that I always talk about with any child at any age, regardless of where you know, you're at, if you're just starting the first step is building their emotional vocabulary. And so I want my child to have lots of words to express their feelings. So I don't want just mad, sad, angry. I want them to understand the nuances of I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling apprehensive. I'm feeling worried, feeling panicky. We want to incorporate those words so that they have a multitude of ways to communicate how they're feeling at any given time, because their ability to put words 
to their feelings will reduce meltdowns, reduce frustration, and will empower them to be able to communicate with you in an effective way. And so we start with just labeling feelings. You know, you seem really nervous about going in there. So use when you use language and different varieties of words, your, your child will glum onto them and they will start to develop a vocabulary. The next thing is kind of a you and your child thing. And so it's very common for us to intuitively want to protect our children. So when our child is overwhelmed by something, we want to remove the thing that's making them overwhelmed. When they don't want to do something because they're scared, some of us don't want them to do it because we are uncomfortable with the distress it's causing our child. Sometimes our kids will have a meltdown about doing something and we'll see it as purely behavioral and we'll want to discipline that. And so when we learn that we want to have our kids walk towards their discomfort or towards their fears, and we don't want to swoop in and always immediately rescue them, that will be a huge gift for our kids as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we leave them hanging. It doesn't mean that we don't empathize and validate their feelings. But what it does mean is we don't inadvertently communicate to our children that they do not have this, that they cannot handle this that they are incapable of confronting this. And our actions often will speak louder than our words. Our quick reaction to swoop up and pick up our child when a dog is walking by before they even have a chance to even see the dog. Or our reaction to just have our child be right next to us because we know that they'll be very uncomfortable if we are a little bit farther away from them. Or we don't sign our kids up for something new because we know that that might be a little bit of a challenge to get them used to it and get them going. And so what we do sometimes doesn't always cause the anxiety or OCD. I would actually argue most of the time it doesn't cause anxiety or OCD because a lot of us, you know, just have it genetically in our family dynamics. But how we react to it can either grow or reduce our child's long-term anxiety or OCD. And so if I start to do compulsions with my child because I don't maybe understand OCD or it looks like they want me to do this and so I'm going to respond in in whatever way will reduce their anxiety or OCD, I'm going to grow their OCD. So you remember how we talked about neuroplasticity being on your side when you have kids of any age. I mean, neuroplasticity is really great when they're really young, but even at 15 or 18, there's still neuroplasticity. We can rewire our brain. But if I am swooping in and my child wants me to say something in a very particular way, they want me to say, I love you too, and I have to kiss them on both sides of their cheek, or they can't go to sleep, or my child wants me to wipe down all the spoons and the forks in the house, or they can't eat, and I don't educate them about the anxiety or OCD, and I do what anxiety or OCD wants me to do. And so I wipe down the forks or the spoons, or I say, I love you too. And I kiss them on both sides of their cheeks multiple times so that they can go to sleep. I'm growing those, those neurons. I'm growing instead of, you know, being flexible and rewiring their brain, I'm wiring their brain. I'm helping wiring their brain to refire and have more anxiety and OCD issues. And nobody wants to do that to their kids. That's not our goal. But that's what our actions can do 
if we're not being proactive. And so being proactive means that maybe on the most simplistic level, I teach my child that when we are anxious or when we're scared of something, that we know that it can show up in the body. And we know that, yes, maybe you're getting nauseous because you're nervous, or maybe you're feeling shaky because your body's feeling really scared. It's having a false alarm. But when that happens, the more you avoid doing those scary things, the more often you're going to get those scary feelings. And actually the way to get rid of those feelings is to walk towards the thing that's making you uncomfortable. Because the more you do something that makes you uncomfortable or anxious or apprehensive, the more natural it becomes and the less anxious you become over time. You're retraining your brain. This isn't scary. I know it feels scary to go to the bathroom and poop. Or I know it feels scary to go to swim class. I know that feels scary. But the more you practice and the more you do, the better it becomes. Now, this doesn't mean that you that you aggressively force them to do these things. It doesn't mean that you say, you're going to swim class and you're going to plop yourself in that pool and I'm going to be nowhere in sight and you're going to do this and you're going to do it over and over and over again until you feel better about it. It's more with love and validation. It's, I know this is hard for you and I know that it feels scary and makes you feel nervous. See the words that I'm using, right? Multiple different words. But the more we avoid going to swim class, the more nervous and scared you're going to be about around water. And you're going to have to be around water for the rest of your life, right? You don't want to be one of those people who can't go swimming because you never learn how to swim. And so let's just do this one small step at a time. We face our fears one small, tiny step at a time. So how about next time we go to swim class, I'll go and sit with you and I'll put my feet in the water next to you while you are working with your swim teacher or whatever. I just wanted to walk you through an example. And then over time, we say, you're doing so well with that. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to be right behind the glass and you can still see me. And so it's about taking our time and showing our kids by leading by example with the things that we do and supporting them with things that are scary for them or anxiety producing for them that we show up one step at a time and we walk them through it. Now notice I haven't said to my child, you have an OCD or you have an anxiety disorder but I'm teaching them how to be brave. I'm teaching them how to walk towards their fears or their discomfort. I'm giving them language. I'm setting an example of how we do that. Now, moving past that, that's like early skill building. If your child is showing clear OCD signs and with OCD, just a little like quick refresher, you have an intrusive thought or feeling and that's your, that's the O part, right? The obsession part. It can be I am worried that I might harm somebody, or I have an intrusive thought that says I'm a bad person, or I have an intrusive thought that says something bad will happen if I don't knock three times every time I leave the house, or I have an intrusive thought that says I'm going to throw up, or I have an intrusive thought that says I'm going to get really sick and the doorknobs are really dangerous. And then with OCD, you have the compulsion, and a compulsion is an action of doing or avoiding something. So it can be avoidance to get some brief relief. And so maybe I have an intrusive thought that says I'm a bad person. And then my compulsion is to confess to you and say, mom, I think I had a bad thought. Or mom, I thought I was going to call you fat. Or mom, I thought I was going to put my middle finger up. Or maybe my compulsion is to wash my hands. Or maybe my compulsion is to even things out. Or maybe my compulsion is to hide the knives or not be near the the kitchen because I don't want to see the knives. Or maybe my compulsion is to touch my left leg, then I have to touch my right leg. Or maybe my compulsion is to 
open the doors with my elbows because I don't want to touch the doorknobs. It can be literally a million different things. But the more you do the compulsion, the more the OCD grows. Now, when you see that, then it is not time to mess around because I say a little bit of OCD is like a little bit of termites. I don't want to wait and see if they eat my whole house down because I know they're already hungry for my foundation. And OCD is to me, anxiety's bigger, better cousin. And it is a cousin I don't want to mess with. And so if I even see them in the neighborhood, they're not even at my house, but they're in the neighborhood. I want to start working on that. I want to make sure that I'm safe. And so I would say that any OCD should be worked on right away. Now, it may not evolve into like a really acute, debilitating situation, but do we want to chance that? And any any skill that you teach to address OCD, again, is a lifelong human skill. The gist of treating OCD is learning to sit with discomfort and uncertainty. I mean, that is the core goal of treating OCD is to learn how to sit with discomfort and learning how to handle uncertainty. And you know what? That's helpful for all of us. I use a lot of my OCD skills that I teach kids in all areas of my life. Sometimes I'll be walking and it'll be so hot. And I live in Arizona. And so I get upset because I love walking now. I love being in the desert. And since my husband died, it's just been so cathartic to just go walking two miles every day. And as the summer comes in Phoenix, I start to get kind of sad because I think, oh my gosh, I won't be able to walk soon. And right now it's May. And so unless I go out really early, it's starting to get hot. And even like, you know, 85 or 89 at this point in the summer is super hot when I walk. Now down the road, when we're in August and it's like 120, I'll be excited when it's 89 and I'll be like, oh my gosh, let me grab my shoes. I need to go outside and go walking. But right now, because I've been like spoiled with like 65 or 72, 89 feels really hot. But as I'm walking, I'll think I'm sitting with discomfort. If I focus on the heat and I just like really obsess about how hot I am and that I can't make it, I'm not going to make it, then I'm not enjoying my walk. But if I learn how to sit with my discomfort and say, yep, I'm walking in the heat and it's hot and listen to the birds. Oh, those are really pretty. Feel the wind. You know, that was a really nice feeling all of a sudden. That's kind of how you tackle OCD is learning how to sit with discomfort and not letting it rule your life. So the wait and see approach for OCD especially is it's like ignoring termites. Nobody would ignore termites. We would be very proactive. We would call, you know, an exterminator. And if they said, well, you know, you've got a couple of termites, but don't worry about it. Would you be like, okay, I'll just wait and see until like, you know, things start to fall. No, you'd be like, okay, can you treat my house? You have to look at OCD the same way. And so some of you may be uncomfortable with labeling it. You might say, well, we don't have a diagnosis yet. So I don't want to label OCD with my child. If you know what it is, if you have it or your partner has it, or you have relatives who have it, and your child is obviously doing compulsions. It is for some OCD, it is like not rocket science. They may not meet diagnostic criteria for OCD, perhaps, depending on the severity of it or how much it's impacting their daily life. But for those of you that have an eye for OCD, I mean, you can tell when someone's doing a compulsion if you've been around it or you've had it yourself. In my opinion, it's okay to start talking about what OCD is and how it works. You're not labeling your child, you're just educating them. We talked about OCD in my house before my youngest had shown OCD symptoms, but she moved into it quickly and she was already well-educated. 
And so you want your child to understand that when they have an intrusive thought or feeling, that the way that it grows is through a compulsion. And you want to use this language. And if you're uncomfortable with the language, throw out the language and just say, you know, when you're Mr. Bossy, you can do, if you're not comfortable with saying OCD, now in my mind, ideally, I think we shouldn't shy away from language like anxiety or OCD. And there are, I've worked with parents where they didn't want to say OCD for a very long time, where like the child clearly has OCD or in treatment for OCD and they still don't want to say OCD. They want me to use different euphemisms for OCD. I don't like doing that. I don't think that's helpful. I think that's stigmatizing because the child's going to grow up and realize they have OCD and they're going to be like, why didn't anyone ever tell me I have OCD? It also limits the amount of resources videos and books that you can show your child because you're afraid that they might hear the word OCD and you don't want that. And so ideally, in my opinion, it's better to use the words anxiety or OCD. But if that's going to be a deal breaker, if you're like, nope, not going to use that word, I don't want my child to hear the word OCD, you can still be proactive and you can still build their skills without using that language and drop the language. That's fine. You can say when you have a bossy thought, right? You do have to spell it out. Like you can't just say when you have a thought because that could be any thought. But when you have a bossy thought and it's telling you that you need to knock three times or something bad's going to happen, the more you listen to your bossy thoughts and you do the things your bossy thoughts wants you to do, the bigger your bossy thoughts are going to grow. And so when you have a bossy thought, you want to teach them the basic foundation of OCD, which is we want to delay doing the compulsion. We want to move into ignoring doing the compulsion. Eventually, we would like to do the opposite if we can, depending on what the intrusive thought or feeling is. And in a beautifully perfect world, you would educate yourself on this stuff 10 times more than what you're educating your child so that you can guide them because you are in the passenger seat with the map ready to guide them and they are in the driver's seat. And so if you don't know where you're going, how is your child going to learn how to go? So at the very, very, very least, you want to educate yourself. Read a book on anxiety, child anxiety. Read a book on child OCD. Take a course if you want to dive deep. I have courses on both, but you don't have to take my course. This isn't a commercial. You know, you can get a book. Depending on however you want to digest your information, do it in the way that you know you'll do it and follow through. I like videos, so I like courses. I take a course on practically everything. I took a course on how to make a podcast. I took a course on how to create an online school, (laughs) which is kind of funny. I actually took a course on how to do membership so I could create my membership. So I love courses. I'm a consumer of courses and a creator of courses. And you can see my courses at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. Now that sounded like a commercial, but I had to put that in there. But that may not be the way that you digest information. Other people like books. They want to read. They want to hold it. They want to read. You know, we're all different learners. And so I think you should get a book on anxiety or OCD. My favorite one on OCD is Talking Back to OCD by John March. It's old, it's classic, it's really, really good and helpful. I would also recommend looking at Ellie Leibowitz's Breaking Free from Childhood Anxiety or OCD. And he teaches the SPACE program, which is his approach, his therapeutic approach, which is parent only, kind of pulling back your accommodations. That book is more like a manual on how to pull back your accommodations, but it's not a good general book about what is anxiety or what is OCD. But find what works for you. Some of you might want an audiobook. You might want to listen to it. But the bottom line is you have to educate yourself 
in order to be able to help your child. And so a lot of times parents want to take a shortcut. They want a tool that they can just directly give to their kids. That's why I purposely did. I don't have a course, although I am actually thinking about developing one. So there's that. But for the last five years, I created resources that are for the parent to teach the child because I don't feel like it's helpful to just throw a course at your child on anxiety or OCD without you fully understanding what it is. Same thing with therapy. It's not helpful for your child to go to therapy once a week, twice a week, or even inpatient. And you have no knowledge and no skills because anxiety and OCD are family affairs. They involve the family regardless of whether the family wants to be a participant or not. And so at the very, very, very least, if you're in doing the wait and see approach, educate yourself so that you can see things in a more clear clinical way. Because with OCD, 99.9% of all OCD is missed. That's not statistically like, you know, I'm not quoting a research study. That's just me talking, but almost always it is missed. Anxiety, not as much. It's more normalized and discounted, but OCD is actually outright missed. Don't be one of those parents that misses something because you're in a wait and see approach. I'll tell you honestly, my daughter, who's 18 now, her pediatrician told me, wait and see for all of her issues. And she had many, a plethora of issues. She had sensory processing disorder. She was like failure to thrive. She had, most of her stuff was sensory processing issues. And he told me, wait and see. And she was falling off the growth curve. And I was like, I can't wait and see anymore because she is like, she's going to be all skin and bones. But she also is very anxious. And so that was my world. And so I knew not to wait and see on that one. And so I jumped on that one right from the get-go. But a lot of times pediatricians will have a wait and see approach. And even with, I'm trying to remember which child this was. I don't know if it was my son. It must've been my son because we changed pediatricians very soon after that. He wasn't eating well. And we were worried about uh, pandas or pans. He had a history of just restrictive eating, just not eating for long extended periods of time. He also had some anxiety and OCD issues. And the pediatrician that I saw at the time told me, I've never met a child who starved to death. Well, I have, not to death, but very close, including my own. And what was the other thing he said? He said, the way that my mom dealt with it back in the day was she would say, if you're not going to eat dinner, it'll be here for breakfast. And guess what? He said to me, I always managed eating. And so that was the last time we ever saw that guy, because if I took his advice, my son, who did wind up nearly being G-tubed about two and a half years ago, has pans, and if you don't know what pandas and pans are, you can Google that, go to pandasnetwork.org, that's a good website. He has Hashimoto's, and so autoimmune issues, and he has ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Now, those might sound like a lot of diagnoses, but they're, they're like intermingled. But the bottom line is I needed to get him help quicker than sticking with a pediatrician who was going to go old school. That wasn't going to help because it wasn't a behavioral issue. It wasn't a discipline issue. It was a medical issue. And so the sooner I got help, the sooner he got better. And now he's doing great. He's 12. He's eating well. We still struggle with it, but he is not medically compromised and we're not being naive. We know what those issues are. He knows what those issues are. He knows how to do exposures and force himself to face some uncomfort. He has all those skills. So when you start off young, and this is the benefit in general of starting out young, 
your kids have language from the get-go. And so my daughter, who's 10 now, from three or four, she would talk about her, I'm trying to think what she called it. She called it her O, she called it her worry cloud in the beginning, and then she moved to O cloud. But she would say, you know, my worry cloud make me no poop. I'm scared it's going to hurt. And she had language for this at three and four. It wasn't like I sat her down and I said, you have an anxiety disorder because I don't, I didn't know if she was going to, I knew she was showing that she was a very, very anxious child. A lot of times with toddlers, it shows up as constipation, fear of pooping, a lot of rigidity in like their routine. And so she had a lot of bathroom issues from the very beginning, which made me concerned. And so, and she would walk around, I'm I scared to poop. I scared. Um, and she's still at 10 has issues with toilet stuff, you know, like that actually kind of carried over, but because she was very young, we were able to walk her through those things. And, you know, we systematically walked through, you know, her pooping or her going into the bathroom and all sorts of things that popped up after that social anxiety and fear of throw up all sorts of things. She, she worked through them pretty well most of the time or better than she would have because she had language for it. And she knew that we don't just give in to our fears. I didn't swoop in and just save her. I would be there to support her and love her and validate her and help her walk through and face her fears. So I know that was a mouthful, a lot of information of just saying, hey, be proactive. But I'm hoping that me talking about it and showing you why it's important kind of helps move the dial because it can't hurt. It can only help. It's not going to hurt someone to say, oh, I learned how to sit with discomfort. I learned how to walk towards my fears one small step at a time. And then I found out I didn't have OCD or I I found out I didn't have an anxiety disorder. That's not going to matter if you're teaching your child that we do brave things or we face our fears one small step at a time. That's okay. Those skills and that language and the vocabulary will help any child. So I hope that's helpful. Stay tuned for next week because I'm trying to see what we have next week. Yeah, next week is an episode that also came from the AT Parenting community parents who wanted me to do a podcast on why OCD is not rational. We were doing a live class on how anxiety and OCD impact the family dynamics. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over again is that the partners were seeing things differently, that it was affecting their marriage or their relationship, and that their spouses were seeing things differently. And it's kind of funny because that's kind of what prompted this episode. But they said a lot of times their partner will want to rationalize or talk to the OCD like it makes sense. And so I said, oh, I'm sure I have a podcast that you can refer them to on that. And then I looked and I didn't have one. And so that's like a very basic thing to talk about, but I am going to talk about it next week. So don't forget to subscribe so that you get notified when new podcasts come out, which are typically every Tuesday. And if you are enjoying my podcast, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast to show your support. I really appreciate that. And if you want to show your support in a much bigger way, leaving a review is greatly appreciated. And to show my appreciation, I always like to read one of those. So I want to thank Sarah for writing a review. Sarah Scorcher, might be mispronouncing your name. She wrote there for us when we needed help in hours, not weeks. 
I started listening to this amazing podcast after my five-year-old suddenly developed very severe compulsive symptoms that led him to refuse all food and liquids. That's funny. We're just talking about that. In one week, he went from a slightly anxious kid with no diagnosis to the ER. Lining up a psychiatrist or therapy would take weeks and we needed help in hours. And we were so desperate, this podcast and Natasha's website and videos were there for us. Here we found the resources to help us understand what was happening and begin to help. And more than that, by being so willing to share her personal journey and that of her family, Natasha offered hope. Hope that we would not only survive this experience, but could even come out stronger, more self-aware, more capable of offering help and compassion to others. In 10 days since we started listening and applying what we learned, we've gone from a child who could not touch clothing, carpeting, furniture, his blanket, any object or person in his home, to one who is consistently meeting his caloric and fluid needs, wearing clothing, sleeping comfortably, and taking walks outside. He still has a long road ahead, and we are working hard to get him connected to medication and therapy as fast as possible, but it's hard to imagine any any therapy that will be as important or transformative for our family as the advice we got from Natasha's work. Thank you for what you have created. Wow. Thank you for your story. You know, that warms my heart. You know, sometimes I don't realize like the level of impact sometimes that my resources could have on people. And I'm so glad that you stumbled on my resources and were able to kind of get support and know exactly what to do in that short period of time. And that your child is doing that much better already is an incredible sign of their resilience, your resilience, and their long-term prognosis. So that's amazing. And thank you for taking the time to write out your story and share it with other people, because I'm sure that there's somebody else out there who will read that and feel inspired as well. Maybe you, somebody else out there I'm talking to. So if you write a review, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. I appreciate hearing your stories and your feedback. It's so good to know there's human beings on the other side of this microphone that are actually being impacted by these things and um, by this help. So I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. I hope to see you in my free series. Don't forget to sign up for that at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.